0: pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Wow, we thank, you for, we thank you for the blood of your dear Son. That spotless sacrifice, our perfect Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is coming again. We thank you for that. Father, we thank you that through the blood of Christ, we can be saved forever, our sins removed, our hearts changed, glory confirmed, and in inheritance ours. Thank you for that. We thank you also that this salvation is available to all who would believe, to all who would come to Christ, to all who would approach you, Father, through Jesus. Their lives can be changed. That's not only our only hope, that's the only hope of this world that we live in. And, Father, as this world takes a decided turn in increasing antagonism towards you, towards your church, towards the people that belong to you, towards your word, towards your truths, towards your law, towards your salvation. May we stand firm. May we not neglect such a great salvation. And Father, may we be courageous in standing in it and talking about it. May we not shrink back for the times in which we live demand of us that we be faithful to our King. That we hold firm what we believe. And with full assurance of what is ours in Christ, what is to come, Father, may each of us resolve to represent you well as your ambassadors with all the time and with every opportunity we have left. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have sung about it today. You've picked up on the theme of it in the scriptures today for sure, and it's an obvious point that the world is aware of too, not just the church, and that's that the Bible is a bloody book. In fact, that's one of the oppositions that's Atheists, humanists, agnostics tend to have against Christianity in particular, the Bible specifically, why why so much blood? Well, why is blood such a, a permeating theme of the Bible? And, and let me make this clear as well. If you ever hear this argument, it's usually born out of, and I say this with sensitivity, not trying to be antagonistic towards anyone, but the argument that the Old Testament is a bloody book, while the New Testament is a different sort of book, loving and kind and etc., it really just doesn't hold up to any scrutiny at all. I mean, the primary theme of the New Testament itself is the crucifixion of Christ for our sins. It's the foundation of four gospels. It's the foundation of every pastoral letter or epistle, and it is the thumb theme of the book of Revelation, the lamb that was slain for us. So again, Why is the Bible such a bloody book? The answer in short for us as Christians is this. There's so much blood in the Bible because there's so much sin in the world. And it's been that way from the very beginning. From the very beginning when sin entered into the world, into a utopia called Eden, into a place that God created for us, for our enjoyment, for our pleasure, for our fellowship with him, where every need was met. Where he himself was the satisfier. From that moment when selfish desires, when confused thinking, when deception crept in and sin was chosen, blood has been the result. The shedding of blood in scripture has always been the result of our sin. From the first sacrifice that God himself made to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, to the final sacrifice that God makes of his own son that covers our sins permanently passage we looked at just a moment ago. Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us in verse 22 that without this shedding of blood, there is no remission of, no payment for, no redemption from sin. It's God's must. In fact, we would say this rightly if if we see sin as it is in the world, proliferating, constant, growing, universal, affecting everybody, then we know biblically there are really only two responses to all the sin we see in the world. One is retribution. That's punishment. That's consequence. That's judgment. That's to stand before God and to be completely revealed. Things known by people and things unknown by people. Things spoken and things thought. Is to be completely Undressed before the Almighty, who knows us completely. And without redemption, there's retribution. But the good news is this. Retribution doesn't have to be your fate. It doesn't have to be anyone's fate. Because God offers redemption. And those are the only two responses to human sin. Redemption through Christ, who took the retribution we deserve for us, or retribution that we receive because we deserve it. In preface to his book, Precious Blood, Richard Phillips writes this, at the very heart of our Christian faith is a precious red substance, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the heart of it. So why so much blood? Well, on the one hand, blood vividly displays the heinousness of sin. What does sin look like at its root? What is its nature? How does a holy God see that sin? In a word, heinous. It's it's the heinous reality of sin, and blood vividly depicts that. In the book of Leviticus, the old law reminds us that our life is made up by our blood. It's blood that gives life. To lose blood is to lose life. To To give blood is to give life. Life is in the blood, Leviticus says. And we see the correlation of sin and blood. We realize how sin destroys life. Sin is a killer. That's why when you see in Romans chapter 3, those correlations, sin and death, sin and death. Blood displays the nature of sin. Blood also, at the same time, displays the just wrath that our sins deserve. God punishes sin with blood, that blood imagery, from the animal that he slayed outside the garden to his son that was slaughtered on a cross. And in between, all of those sacrifices that the book of Hebrews speaks to, alludes to, describes bulls, goats, lambs, birds, all those sacrifices, helping us see sin deserves wrath. Wrath is the only just and right response to sin. But that's only one side. At the same time, when we look particularly to what Christ did for us, what you heard about before we took Lord's Supper together, what we've sung about and read about, what you know about if you're a Christian is this, the blood also symbolizes love. How deep is God's love for us? What is the depth of God's love for us? The mercy God displays for us, the grace God gives to us, and what great cost afforded it to us? Blood. Blood. You want to know the love of God for you? By this, God demonstrated his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's the blood of Christ that shows the love of God for us. So in one powerful, visceral, as Richard Phillips writes, precious red substance, we see sin and its consequence. And we see love and its response. And that's, that's what blood is for. And you know, God always knew it would be this way. He always knew it would be this way. Revelation thirteen eight tells us that there is a book that has always been. Before the foundation of time, think about that for a moment. Let that stretch your mind. Before time began, there was a book in God's presence. And the name of that book... The book of life of the lamb that was slain, Revelation 13, 8. And all of us know this. If you've been in church very much of your life at all, you know that the very center of our faith is an event that was among the bloodiest, goriest, most gruesome, most heinous events in all of history. And that's the death of Christ on the cross. Our faith teeters at that event. Had Christ not died for us and been raised for us, the Bible makes it clear. Our faith would be futile. Our religion would be empty and worthless. And we would still be in our trespasses and sins. What would that mean for us? It wouldn't mean redemption would be our future. It would mean retribution would be our future. It all hinges in this moment. There's no salvation for anybody without the bloodshed of that event, Jesus on the cross. And what Revelation 13.8 says, tells us is this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. And he also tells us in the book of Revelation that this event is something that we're going to sing about and celebrate forever and ever. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered. We use the word slain, but slaughtered is the right word. It carries with it the real weight of what happened. You were slaughtered, and by your blood, your shed blood, your spilled blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Bible says we're going to sing that. We're going to sing what God has accomplished for his own through the blood of Christ. Why is the the Bible so bloody? Because we are so sinful, yet God is so good. And that goodness of God will shine through forever and ever. Now, in in Hebrews chapter 9, we see this comparison, contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they have this in common. Both the Old and the New Covenants were written in blood. The theme of blood is prevalent in both. They're both written in blood, but one of them is far better than the other. Right, so he talks about the old covenant. Everything covered in blood. The sacrifice is done in blood. If you were here last week, you saw the model depicting the tabernacle layout and how everything symbolized the holiness of God and the salvation offered to him and ultimately foreshadowed Christ who would give that salvation to us. Nothing that we could do, but only that which Christ could do for us. And all of this in blood. Everything covered by that as a symbolic payment for the sins that separate people from God. They're both written in blood, but one is far better. Why? What does Hebrews teach us about the new covenant that makes it so superior to the old? Well, the first is this. It's better because Jesus is the mediator of it. He's the mediator of it. It's no human being. It's no earthly priest. It's no man like you and me. It's the son of God that mediates it. I agreed to be the executor of my brother's estate. I envision doing a scene like that for his daughters. I want to find a wood-paneled room where I can very solemnly read the will, even though I know it doesn't exactly work like that. But I, I think I know my role in that to make sure, as much as lies within me, to see that those plans and those desires expressed in that will get carried out. I'm the executor of that. You know, As imperfect as that may be, I'll try to make sure my brother's wishes are carried out. Isn't it it cool to know that the wishes of God for you are mediated by Christ? To make sure that you get what God wants you to have, what God wants to give you for all eternity, you know who the guarantor of that will is and the executor of that will is? It's Jesus. That makes me pretty confident. How about you? To know that when I stand in glory and the will of God is unveiled, what God's inheritance is for the saints. It's guaranteed by Christ. He's going to make sure that it happens. It's also better because in this will, I'm finally and truly forgiven. It's not a constant act of reminding me of how much I need to be forgiven and how much I should continue to seek to be forgiven. It's it's the state of forgiveness. I stand forgiven in Christ. My sins have been atoned for. His wrath has been propitiated. It's been taken away by what Christ did when he bore it for me, I'm finally forgiven. It's better because the result of this new covenant is an eternal inheritance, an eternal inheritance of what God does for us in the new covenant is not short-lived. In the old covenant, what was their inheritance? You got a place to live. They gave, God gave the old covenant receivers a land. He gave them a law. He gave them Earthly protection, it did not guarantee their salvation. Not everyone who was Jewish in the Old Testament, not every Hebrew, not every member of the nation of Israel went to glory when they died, went to heaven when they died. That was not part of it. It was a temporal covenant for them. The covenant that God made lasts forever and ever. The land still is theirs forever, but nobody lives forever, so they don't enjoy it forever. But our inheritance in Christ is forever What God gives you, no one can take it away. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't fade. You never grow tired of it. It never becomes less interesting. It never becomes dull to you. There will never be a time where you and I are going to be in heaven, and we're going to be tired of what we do there. So if your image of heaven is some wonky thing that you picked up somewhere, like sitting up on a cloud, strumming a harp, and you don't even like music, forget about it. That's not what heaven is like. If you sit there and ponder sometimes and you're sitting out there on the lake and you're thinking about heavenly things, am I going to get tired of being up there? No, you're not, because it's not going to fade. It's not going to spoil. That's very different than the stuff of this life, isn't it? If any of you are like me and you like that next shiny thing, and uh, you go through these cycles and say, you know, if I only had this, then I wouldn't want anything else. If I just had that, then I'd be done. I'd never want anything. Just, just give me that, and then I'd be satisfied. Isn't it amazing for us how quickly the shine wears off, the excitement is gone, and then it's over. That's the nature of temporal stuff. Heaven doesn't have that nature. It never fades. It never goes away. It's eternal. You see, only one covenant redeems us. That's our theme today. Redemption redeems us. What is redemption? Well, you heard a good biblical and theological explanation of redemption today already. Let me give you one simple definition. Redemption is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment. Redemption is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment. I'll give you a simple example, a short-term temporal example. When my daughter Sarah graduated from Belmont University in Nashville, we were up there for the weekend, and we let her plan the weekend for us, where we're going to eat, what we're going to do, all that, you know, celebrate her. And uh, I was applauding her for her. first night we were there, a restaurant she chose, next day, so good. After graduation, she picked this place, this real bougie place in Nashville. And um, I got to say, and I know she'll be watching this, man, I was really let down. It was a dog. Um, it was one of those kind of places, I don't know how to explain this. You've been to these kind of places where they take traditional kind of fare, but they try way too hard with it. And then they turn into something funky. Like, if you're gonna make chicken fried steak, make chicken fried steak, but don't do whatever you just did to that because I don't know what that is. And I'm a basic guy, if you're gonna make banana pudding, I'm not sure how many ingredients it has, but it doesn't have that many. And you maybe think, where'd you guys go? Did you guys go to like Cracker Barrel? No, no, I'm telling you, this place cost me a lot of money. And it wasn't good. And I told Sarah, just kind of half joking, like, man, you dropped the ball on that. You really, you fumbled it. She said, I'll pay. I'll split the cost. No, I'll pay for it. (laughs) Then this weekend, we're visiting her in in Birmingham, and we let her pick a place. And And I told her when we finished eating, I gave her the fist bump across the table. I said, boom, you redeemed yourself. You redeemed yourself. It's all good now. I'll let you pick a restaurant again. You redeemed yourself. We kind of have a sense in the earthly sphere of what redemption looks like. You know, redemption in the baseball game is the The person that struck out three times, but gets up in the bottom of the ninth with two men on and drives in the winning run, we say, redeemed himself. He got it back. And a lot of people in this life are trying to redeem themselves. I think they come to a certain age, they look back and say, wow, that doesn't look pretty. What a mess. We do it with our kids sometimes. You know, because maybe we didn't spend enough time or enough intentional time or do the things we wish we would have done, so we start trying again around a certain age. Maybe it's 16, maybe it's 26, maybe it's 46. i I'm trying to redeem the time, right? Trying to get it back. Trying to do this. Trying to regain possession of something in exchange for paying something. But when it comes to sin and our souls, we can't redeem ourselves. What shall a man give? In exchange for his soul. How do you redeem it? Once you've sinned against the Almighty, once you've fallen into the category of sinner, once you no longer can claim perfection, holiness, righteousness, how do you regain it? How do you restore it? You can't redeem yourself. That's why a verse like Ephesians 1:7 is so awesome for us. In him We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Why do we take Lord's Supper together today? Why do we sing the songs that are familiar to us today with themes that we're well aware of today? So we'll never stop remembering the redemption that we have in Christ, the payment for our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and the richness of his grace. And I want you to hear this today. When we talk about redemption, if you walk out of here thinking just one thing, let it be this. The redemption that God gives us in Christ affects far more than where you're going to spend eternity. If your understanding of God's redemption is only future tense, if it's only about walking through the pearly gates one day, as opposing through stepping through the gates of hell one day, you're missing out on the big picture of redemption. Redemption touches every part of us. It hits every part of our life, every part of our existence, every part of our human experience, every part of our daily routine, every one of our relationships, all of our priorities, every one of our values, everything that's important. It touches redemption. I want you to open your Bible to First Peter chapter one for a second. I'm going to take you over the quickest flyover of the value of your redemption in Christ from just one chapter in the Bible. There are so many others. There's so many statements about redemption and its value. But when you recognize this, God included me in the inheritance he wanted to give Christ. The inheritance of his son, who, for whom all things exist. It's all his. It's all his. And it becomes ours with him. We're co-heirs with Christ. We get the inheritance of Christ. Can I show you a few things that does? You're going to have to write fast. You have to think quickly. Look what we have been redeemed from. Look what's included in the will. When God wrote you in, when you got adopted in, when by God's grace as a Gentile believer you got grafted in, look what you got. Going quickly. Verse 3. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God redeemed judgment for mercy. Judgment's what we deserve. That's retribution. But he redeemed it and gave us mercy. According to his great mercy, he calls us to be born again. Second part of verse 3. He says, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God took the despair of this life and dying and saying, now what? there's nothing more but to live and then to die, how futile is that? God took our despair and redeemed it for hope. That's part of the redemption package. We've got a living hope. It's not just about going through this life and the pain and sufferings of it, and then you die. How miserable is that for so many? No, there's living hope that we have because there's life after death, the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. God redeemed all of our short-lived stuff for forever stuff. He redeemed short-lived for forever. It's not going to go away. It's not going to fade. It's not going to lose its luster or its value. And no one can touch it because Christ holds it. Short-lived for forever. He redeemed that. If you're still living for the short-lived, do you recognize that he's redeemed you for something that lasts forever? Are you living for forever things? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that we can rejoice even if we have been grieved by all kinds of trials. Life's hard, right? I get it. You've been through tough stuff. I get it. Today's my son Mark's birthday. I was 24 today. Um, and we visited him this weekend. It's always tough for us. Always emotionally hard. Cecilia had eye surgery this week, so she had to fight back crying because it's not good for her eye surgery. Um, I couldn't cry because then it makes her cry. But you just push all that stuff down. No, it's tough. Life ain't always like it's supposed to be. But I'm telling you this: if I didn't have a living hope. If I didn't have a promise of an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, I got no hope there. I got no joy there. It's Christ as part of the package of redemption that he gives us. It's part of our inheritance. We can change sorrow for joy even in trial. Verse 8 and 9 says, Knowing that one day we're going to obtain the outcome of our faith, we can, up, we can rejoice now. So even when it's hard, I know one day my son's not going to have autism. He's not going to suffer. He's not going to hurt himself. He's not going to hurt others. He's not not going to be in that shape. Knowing the outcome gives joy now. That's part of redemption. You get that when you get Christ. Look at verse 7. This fate that will take us to heaven, this fate that gives us glory, the Bible says is more precious than gold. How cool is it to know that the inheritance that God gives us redeems our gold for his glory? All the stuff that we live for, And all the stuff that we want and all the stuff that we accumulate, God's going to redeem that because there's something more valuable than that. Have you come to the point in your life where you realize there's something more valuable than gold? Something more valuable than stuff? Something more valuable than anything this world's got? It's the glory that he saves us for. It's more precious than gold. In verses 12 and 13, we see how God reveals truth to us, how the Holy Spirit announces that truth to us. And the effect is that our minds are made sober, able to think clearly, Part of our redemption is God redeems our confusion, and He exchanges it for clarity. Confusion about what I'm here for, confusion about who He is, confusion about life and death. And He gives me clarity because His Word tells me, His Holy Spirit clarifies, and our minds are made able to respond to it because we're made new. We're made new by the renewing of our minds. Verse 14 tells us that the passions of our former ignorance... You know, those things we used to lust for and desire, those things that used to lead us to all sorts of bad decisions and sins, all those things are beginning to go away, and God is redeeming us. Our evil desires are being redeemed for good. All the time, God's doing that work in us. He's redeeming the evil desires in us. That's why when we say we're redeemed, we're not who we used to be anymore. We're not just going to a different place than we would have been going before. We're not the same people going to that place anymore from the inside out. Verses 15 and 16 of 1 Peter 1 describe how our new lives of holiness are emerging. This new life, and he's redeeming the old life all the time for the new. We're new creations in Christ. We don't just have a new address in Christ. We're new people. We're new residents of that address in Christ. And ultimately, he redeems, and this is what redemption is all about. He redeems death for life. The life is in the blood. Our sins brought death, but his blood gives life. That's how he redeems us. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Death to life forever, that's redemption. So what's your response to God's offer of redemption? What's your reaction If you're a Christian, what's your worshipful reaction or response? If you're not a Christian yet, what is your reaction or response? Remember what I said at the beginning? Not to manipulate or frighten, but to honestly and lovingly inform. There are only two possibilities. Sin is undeniable. You can't deny it about yourself. We don't deny it about the world that we live in. Its effects are obvious. And the only response to sin is either retribution, sin receiving its just deserves, that's justice, that's holiness, that's God. Or redemption, that's mercy, that's love, that's also God. But it comes to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who loved us, gave himself for us, rose again for us, and is coming back for us. Retribution, redemption. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what is ours in Christ. Thank you that our inheritance is not hidden, unknown. It's not a mystery. You have revealed it over and over But there's so much that we can't get our minds around. It's bigger than us. More than our eyes can see or our minds can comprehend. So great is what you have in store for those who love you, Father. And we trust you with that. We believe that. Also so great is our inheritance right here, right now. We're not who we used to be. We don't want what we used to want. We're empowered to do things we couldn't do before because of you. Oh, Father, I pray for every believer in this room that we would celebrate redemption today. We'd walk out of here on a cloud of gratitude over our redemption. We'd walk out of here emboldened, encouraged, motivated to tell other people you too can be redeemed. And whoever's listening right now, they're watching at home, on their device, on the road, or whether they're sitting in this room choice of retribution and redemption ultimately falls on us what will we do with what Christ has done he has offered to redeem me he has offered to redeem you Father you have offered redemption to us in Christ our response is repentance to turn from sin, belief trust you at what you have done and what your word says of you And to come to you by faith right now. And Father, I pray somebody would. So Lord, be glorified in our responses today. Father, we are your ambassadors in this world. We carry about this message of redemption, reconciliation. May we do it well for your glory. For the good of those who need you, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.